Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Paul Mason. We spoke about the coronavirus crisis, the UK government's response, the failure of senior journalists to hold the government to account and why the crisis may lead to a profound transformation of the global economy. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a $5 supporter, you'll also get access to regular mini episodes on current affairs as well. New patrons can also sign up for free and discounted subscriptions to Tribune magazine and a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution. A new collection from Verso Books spanning three centuries and four waves of feminist activism and writing. Edited by Brian Fars, she argues that we need manifestos in all their urgent rawness and that the bleeding edge of rage and defiance ignites new and revolutionary possibilities. It includes 75 manifestos from around the world, including Dyke Manifesto by the Lesbian Avengers, Simone de Beauvoir's pro-abortion manifesto of the 343, Riot Girl Manifesto by Bikini Kill, and Anarchy and the Sex Question by Emma Goldman. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Paul Mason is a prolific author and filmmaker. As economics editor at BBC Newsnight and then Channel 4 News, he covered the global financial crisis, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement and the Gaza War. His latest book is Clear Bright Future, A Radical Defence of the Human Being. In the interview, we discussed an article he published today entitled Day One of the UK's Suppression Strategy. You can find a link to that article in the description of today's show. Before we start talking about the, the broader economic consequences of the coronavirus crisis, I thought it might be good to get your view on the government's response, which increasingly looks like it will have cost lives by failing to implement the kind of very intensive testing, social distancing and use of lockdowns that we've seen in other countries. I mean, of course, the government would say, and and we don't have concrete evidence to suggest otherwise, that they were simply following the advice of their scientific advisers. Where, in your view, does responsibility lie for the UK's uh, seemingly criminal negligence, really, regarding the response? The British government clearly took a decision. We don't know how it took the decision or why, but it took a decision to become an outlier, a kind of laid back uh, beacon of laid backness to the rest of the world while everyone else was panicking the brits would look cool calm and collected and do nothing about coronavirus i think that's that's the lesson of the last six weeks we had the first cases in britain uh, on the 31st of january by then the health technocrats i call them medical technocrats they're not scientists had done the right thing and they'd raised the the risk level to moderate now you know from very low right then there's a month in which nothing happens. Where the, there's no government emergency meeting. That's the first question we, we need to ask. Why? But once, clearly in the background, they were working on something. And once we get to this so-called COBRA meeting on the 3rd of March, we know what that something is. It was never levelled with people, what it was, but we can now read back from what happened then. They clearly took a decision that by 
letting enough people catch the disease, they could manage it through the population and come out without too much economic damage, uh, albeit with some people dying and necessarily dying because they weren't trying to contain the virus. Now, in hindsight, we now know because of the way Imperial College scientists have categorized it, this was a, a mitigation strategy. It wasn't a suppression strategy. Everybody else in the world probably didn't really understand the difference too much. But, you know, we do now because the mitigation strategy, which was designed, you know, at one point, one of the, one of the, 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 the government scientists, uh, David Valnes, used the words herd immunity. He said, we could achieve herd immunity like you do when you vaccinate most people. Everybody becomes immune because there's not enough of the disease going around for those who aren't vaccinated to suffer. That's what herd immunity is. To apply this herd immunity objective to a virus that doesn't yet have a vaccine means that you, A, are relying on the on the supposition that by catching it, you become immune, and B, that not too many people die. We don't know what the scientific evidence for that was, but my suspicion is there wasn't enough. Because the same scientists now are coming through and saying, actually, you know what, if we did that, if we carry on with that, a quarter of a million people will die, which is what they said yesterday, then the science can't have been very good. And if it was only provisional and f fuzzy, and all statistical-based science is fuzzy in that sense, then it wasn't good enough to take a decision on the basis of. So I always said, and I said this from the very beginning, this is a political decision. Politicians must take responsibility for it. Um, of course, they're not doing that. But it, it speaks to a, a bigger problem that we have in the neoliberal era, especially in Britain. You've, you've got disaster after disaster, whether it's the Grenfell Tower fire or the Windrush scandal. Things go wrong and then there's an inquiry and you say, well, who was responsible? And, and the answer always breaks down somewhere where there's an interface between the public and private sectors. So much of our state is privatised. So many of the relationships between people who purchase the public service, the taxpayer, and the ultimate provider are commercial relationships and many layered relationships. It's often not possible to find out who's, who did something wrong. Even now, uh, you know, two years after the Grenfell fire, nobody's been prosecuted. We don't know who it was, who, who ultimately was responsible. That is a sickness that neoliberalism has brought par excellence into the British state. And from the moment this COVID virus started, I wasn't so concerned about, you know, some you know some people have conspiracy theories. Some people say, well, you know, there are eugenicists in number 10. There are, or there were. I wasn't concerned about that. I was concerned about this culture of bureaucratic indifference that arises whenever you commercialise the relationship between the state and the private sector. And, and, and I was right to be, I mean, wrote about it on the day, 3rd of March. I said, this is going to go wrong because nobody will check whether it's right. They'll just say, well, the science says. It took, remember, the scientists to come back, in this case, modelers from Imperial College and the London School of Tropical Hygiene and Medicine, to say, do you know what? Um, according to our model, we're going to kill a quarter of a million Brits. Let's stop. And they did stop. So you would see this really as a, as a structural problem because I'm, uh, you know, I think some people would think, and I've, I've thought this myself, that however bad this situation might have been had, say, Theresa May been um, the, the Prime Minister, you know, it feels very much like we have literally the worst people in Parliament who are in charge right now. Well, look, I mean, Boris Johnson is an amateur 
He's a professional amateur. Uh, he's surrounded by you know, Dominic Cummings, who put the advert out, we want cranks and weirdos. We don't know how many cranks and weirdos are actually, that's their words, are actually in number 10 taking decisions. One hopes that the figure is zero. But on top of that, you've got the problem of conservatism. Because people say, well, what would make a guy who wants to be popular um, choose a strategy that inadvertently kills a quarter of a million people? Many of them conservative voters being old. And the one word answer is conservatism. Because the essence of conservatism is that the state does as little as possible. That you let the market, um, you know, I'm sure in his mind, and in Dominic Cummings' mind, the model they use, they're thinking about, when they're thinking about the coronavirus, is a market. It's like a market force. And, and because if you think about it, it's very like a, mar a market in the sense that the strong survive and the weak perish. That's what markets do. That's what red in tooth and claw neoliberal capitalism has been doing for 40 years. So no surprise that this thing comes along. And instead of seeing it as actually you, you might think with this, with this Churchill obsession, instead of seeing it as a, an enemy to be defeated, he sees it, I think, and they see it as a market force, which can be, and then he says it inadvertently on a TV program, Good Morning Britain. He's asked a question. He says, uh, there's a theory we should just let this move through the population and take it on the chin. When you think about that, I've been thinking about those words, and, and it's like a, when I hear those words, I, I hear basically Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman talking about markets. So it's, it's something deeply ingrained that the state should do as little as possible, that the, the objective force uh, of the market should be allowed to rip. And if you transmute that to, to a virus, the, the virus should be allowed to take its course um, without the state intervening. I think when we look back at this um, two and a half week period, I think it could come to prosecutions. Obviously not of the scientists. The scientists and, and medical technocrats act in the best interests. You know, they, they always try and act in the best interest. And what you observe, I, oh, I could, you could script this, you could predict it. They're out of their league. They're facing some of the most devious and evil people in the world in British right-wing conservatism. And they go in and, in good faith and they offer arguments and they offer evidence. And before they know it, they've created a rationale for, for doing nothing in the face of one of the most fatal diseases we've ever seen in modern times. So I think we, there will have to be some forensics done on it. Of course, who's not doing the forensics are the press corps. Yes. And, and I, I know this very well, having, having worked in, partly in that world. What you need to ask about Boris, there's no switch to daily press conferences. I mean, good luck with that. It'll be dire. But what you need to ask is who's in the room. And when you look at who's in the room, it's basically the lobby. And the lobby in British journalism is a, an insider clique whose access to the stories they need to put bread on the table, you know, table and take on the six-figure salaries at the end of the year, relies on their insider status. So as far as I can see, in that room, in the, the, the briefing room at number 10, the, you know, the, for example, I mean, I've been seriously thinking the last 24 hours, how do I get in? Can I get somebody to, you know, can I go in on behalf of, of a publication? Could you go in? Uh, no, the answer is, and, and more importantly, feisty, bolshy political correspondents are not in there. It's really, the, it's the stenography brigade, the old favourites who, you know, all they want is to be whispered a little tidbit of inside knowledge at 10 o'clock at night so they can tweet about it. That, I'm afraid, we can't rely on them 
to hold the government to account. You know why? Uh, it's a case study, QED. They didn't. In fact, what some did, they went as, as soon as the left started to make this criticism and as soon as scientists wrote a letter, largely mathematicians from Queen Mary University, immediately some of these lobby correspondents were on Twitter decrying the criticism, saying, who are they, mathematicians, to call into question our chief medical officer? Or when Labour criticised it, they, one guy says, ITA, ITV political correspondent says, um, Corbyn's politicised this, uh, it's a mistake. No, I'm sorry, with life and death at stake, uh, I, I think we need better journalists in that uh, briefing room. And I think we need a different format so that the questions can be forensic, followed up, on basic stuff like that, the outcome of this crisis will, will rest. Would you regard them as uh, the lobby journalists as, uh, you know, in some respects, part of a, part of a, a health hazard to, to, to the public? Well, look, my analogy here is what happened in the, in the financial crisis. In the financial crisis, first of all, let's remember, Philip Mirosky makes this brilliant point that it wasn't just that the economists got it wrong. By getting it wrong, by telling us complexity equals safety, they encouraged risky behaviour. Now, we don't know what the role of these chief medical and scientific officers has been. I hope it's not as pernicious as that. So the analogy here is the is scientists, modellers uh, and, and epidemiologists, whether they get it right or wrong for good, good or bad reason, if they get it wrong, uh, that's the first problem. Just like the economists, by saying, hey, guys, you know, it, it's, it's quite safe to let this thing rip through the population. Only a few old people will die. Then you get that wrong. You, you encourage risky, risky political decision making. But then it's the journalists, because, because before 2008, in the economics profession, it was the journalists who were part of the groupthink who could not imagine a crisis. You know, when you was, well, I was saying to people, you know, I, I wrote an article a year before uh, the financial crisis saying that, you know, key people on Wall Street and the, and the London Stock Exchange were, were waiting for the crash. And people ridiculed me, said, what are you on about? You know, no, I didn't, tell, I didn't predict when the crash would come or why it would happen. I did, because I talked to people who said, this can't last. This is, this, I'm getting out of this market now. Um, but no, right until the very end, that's actually weirdly because some of them have crossed over from business to politics. Some of the very same journalists were basically fronting up the government's line um, on the economic crisis. And now, 12 years on, they're fronting up the government's line on a, a much bigger and more existential crisis. So I do think that business and political journalism really needs to look hard at the institutional links that we've got. And I hope that people will draw the lessons of this last two weeks. It's Thankfully, we've caught the mistake early enough probably to avoid uh, an order of magnitude of deaths. That is, if it's 25,000 and not 250,000, good. But they played no obvious part in that U-turn. Let's move on to the broader economic consequences. So in the early stages of the crisis, we heard a lot from uh, politicians and economists suggesting that uh, this was an exogenous crisis and that the fundamentals of the global economy were relatively sound. And even yesterday, we had Boris Johnson talking about the economy coming roaring back. But largely, this you know th that kind of talk feels like a long time ago today. You know, We have Tory MPs briefing that they may have to implement much of Jeremy yeah. Corbyn's economic programme. We're seeing all the tools of the, of the 2008 crisis being used, QE, 
uh, low interest rates, the, the so-called swap lines to maintain bank liquidity. And we're hearing increasing talk of, of even uh, deploying universal basic income and, and so-called yep. helicopter money. Um, I mean, how do you think this crisis compares to, to 2008? Well, um, it's like 2008, but with an extra layer. In 2008, I remember Alistair Darling standing up in a very bleak conference room saying, look, the financial system's collapsing, but the real economy beneath it is sound and it was growing and was fine. What he never got his head around and what Boris Johnson can't get his head around today because he uses the same, the same language is that it is a financialized capitalism. And so if the financial system, which is full of complexity and hidden danger and fragility collapses, then it will collapse back on to to the real economy of the people I was in Tesco's with, you know, getting there, you know, queuing, there's hundreds of us outside Tesco's this morning, you know, queuing for food that really wasn't there. Um, that's the real economy. Now, you know, if a major bank falls over and suddenly, you know, your, your profits are not there. I mean, I have, I was forced to take out a private pension by one of my employers. I've been looking at it in the last five days. It's shrunk, <laughs> by, it's shrunk in size by 10%. Yeah. Um, and thank goodness it's not my only pension. But if it was, what's happening? I'm not going to Tesco's anymore. I'm going to Lidl, you know, um, or, or I'm, I'm, I might go to a food bank in the end. So, so you can see that the financial crisis feeds back into the real economy in a way that a lot of analog era politicians don't seem to understand. But this time, of course, what they did, they actually fixed quite a bit of the financial system, especially in the United Kingdom. Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, 2008-2009, brought in a new architecture that, that, that requires more capital in the finance system, that gives regulators more surveillance. Uh, and the, the world authorities have done the same. Of course, they did so at the price of printing a lot of money and running up a lot of debt. We'll come back to that. But the architecture of the financial system looks a bit safer. Does that mean that you think, say, you know, some kind of severe credit event is unlikely? No, because I'm coming to this. There's a third layer. The third layer that didn't exist in 2008 is, is the exogenous shock. It is, uh, you know, one could call it you know, external or exogenous. But, you know, the development of capitalism, one could argue, in, in, in Asia has created the conditions for this virus. I don't, I'm not saying this in order to stigmatize China as, as someone on the right are, but it is worth making the point that a breakneck urbanization um, and a very, very deregulated capitalism where nobody gives a shit about food standards. I can tell you that. I mean, China, my goodness, I've been seven times to China and, 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 and you, you look at it. In some of the, China, the, the slums of, of, of China and other and other developing countries, and you wonder why we don't get more of these uh, these these viruses. So you know you can't then say that it's exogenous to capitalism uh, in that sense, but it is a non-economic. You know it comes from the, it comes from epidemiology. It comes from it comes from crossover viruses. So it comes into the system, but you know the system clearly is not built for that. And this is what makes me so angry about what Boris Johnson didn't do. Because if you understand, if something like, you know, whether if 25,000 people die, that, that, that's going to mean, sorry, that, that itself means that, you know, millions of people get the disease. Uh, if you cannot imagine what happens to the real economy and, the, and the, the, the imploding financial system from a virus, don't do things like slash the NHS. I, I spoke... Uh, yesterday to a nurse in an English teaching hospital, senior nurse, who was due to train for coronavirus care and is on the front line now doing it. 
and they couldn't train because they only had one mask. So, oh, you know, you can't pass a mask around in an epidemic. How do we get to that situation? Oh, well, we cut 17,000 beds out of the NHS. We, we slashed it in real terms. We slashed social care. We've slashed local government, which is now, by the way, the responsible authority for health and social care in Britain. If you can't imagine what happens to an epidemic, to the economy, don't take risks with it. But that's what they did. And so I think that what I think is going to happen is the financial system looks safe, but complexity creates fragility. That's the great lesson we learned from 2008. It doesn't create safety. And so financial entities are so linked together to each other and exposed to each other's debt and fragility that as soon as the, the centralised authorities can't hold it together, you'll see a very rapid, almost vacuum-like implosion. So I, I can't predict the specifics, but if you look at, you know, the, the person laid off this week for my local pub has shut. It's put a, uh, they've put a, a sign in the window saying, you know, expletive Boris, thanks very much. We've done how to shut our business. So my pub, which, you know, is the centre of the community as well. It's a very hip, you know, grungy South London pub. It's gone. The four or five people who work there, you know, are mainly uh, migrants. Uh, they won't go home. They love here. They love being here. They're more or less Brits, South Londoners. Um, they... So where they go, what they're going to do? There's no other pub jobs at all going. Meanwhile, a lot of actors, a lot of musicians, a lot of restaurant waiters, chefs, they're all gone. Their jobs have gone in a week. So what happens? Some of them can't pay their rent. So now the bloke next door who's let his house out as a buy-to-let house, he won't be getting the rent. So then he's not going to pay his mortgage. And then the mortgage company or the bank is going to look at its mortgage portfolio and they're going to say, you know what, this looks like exactly like 2007. Uh, panic stations, guys. We need a bank bailout. Um, look what's happening to the, the share prices of banks. They're collapsing. No, that, that is the share prices collapsing, not the bank. But that's where we are. It will only take two or three more steps without serious concerted government action. And then you're into bank collapse. Then you're into stock market collapse. Uh, and you've got a generalised collapse in demand. And it's, when, when, I'm sorry, the word for politicians who say the real economy is OK, it's thick. It's stupid. <laughs> uh, it, it's, the, the real economy is the financial economy. And it's not OK. Even my gym membership. So my gym membership, obviously, I've stopped going to the gym. I've got a relative who's in one of the high risk groups. So I'm completely trying to avoid exposure. So I stopped going to the gym. I'm not going to cancel the gym membership, to be honest, but... I am cancelling some things, like I'm cancelling my, my, my bike shed rental because I'm going to use my bike. It's not going to be in the shed. So that's that's so bit by bit, the businesses fall over. All that income, say, to my gym and my bike shed rental company are already securitized. What does that mean is that someone has already created a bond and, and, and then 100 different investors have bought that bond, which is the right to have my gym membership money. If I cancel my gym membership money, you know, a million cancelled gym memberships just turns into uh, it, it's it's like a virus, but in the financial system. So that's what we're going to get our heads around. The real economy is so financialized that shocks like this will ripple straight through it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. 
go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.